What's going on, everybody? This is Jerome Moore, host and creator of Deep Dish Conversations. And firstly, I want to say thank you for all of support and thank you for exploring the perspectives of social change with me on this platform. I want to encourage you all to like, subscribe, and follow us on YouTube and on your favorite podcast listening platform. And make sure you give us a five-star rating if you're loving the Deep Dish Conversations. I appreciate all of the support again. I hope you all enjoy this episode. What's going on? Uh, Robin, Kimbrough Hayes, how you doing? Welcome to the platform. I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, I'm thrilled to have you here. I'm thrilled about the conversation we're going to have. I'm thrilled for people who may not be aware about what you've done and what you plan to do uh, running for judge in General Sessions Division 5, right? Division 5, where Division the V five. stands for vision and victory. Vision and victory. And so... Um, yeah, so let's go ahead and get started. Get straight into it. Uh, tell tell us. I know you had a long career. <laughs> I know you had a long career. And so, can you give us the abbreviated, like the core points of, um, like who you are, your background, and then what maybe inspired you into getting into the to the criminal justice system, um, and then we can take it from there. Great. Well, um, I went to Emory School of Law after graduating from Fisk University here in Nashville. And um, after graduating from Emory, I got my first job as an assistant attorney general for the state of Tennessee. Okay. So I actually worked in what they call the criminal justice division. So I did criminal appeals on behalf of the state. So I argued appeals before the Court of Criminal Appeals here in Tennessee. So when I ran for U.S. Senate, I said I argued cases um, from the hood to the holler, and I did. So I was all over um, Tennessee ar arguing these cases. I did a brief, um, um, brief, um, briefly practiced um, in um, private practice at a boutique firm. And so that's where I cut my teeth on General Sessions Court um, cases. And then um, I went to work for the Department of Children's Services as an associate general counsel. And in between that time, I was completing um, divinity school right. uh, at Van Vanderbilt. So I have a master of divinity from Vanderbilt. And um, I have two children and got married during that time and stayed home with my children and went back to work as legal counsel for the Tennessee Coalition to End Domestic and Sexual Violence. And I will say that that career opportunity has changed, changed the trajectory of who I am as an attorney, who I am as a, as a person. Um, I grew a lot there. I learned a lot very quickly. And I was able to help thousands of people around the state of Tennessee. It was a very rewarding experience. And I'm still the person that a lot of people go to for questions about domestic violence issues, um, mm -hmm. technical pieces of order protection, and not just here locally, but still statewide. Right. Because I did training all over the state for judges, police officers, advocates, um, medical professionals, and staff, um, lay persons who just want to know about issues of domestic violence. And now I have a wonderful opportunity of combining my legal and um, theological um, paths at Meharry Medical College where I serve as the chaplain and special advisor to the president on United Methodist Affairs and director of our ombuds office where I handle grievances and other issues in an informal and confidential manner. So um, you've done it all. I've, I've done it. I've done it all and um, so when I look over those pieces of my career I can see how um, I was navigating family um, and navigating career 
and just having a career focused on service to the community, um, service to promote and advocate um, for justice um, for all people. And I've just lived a life like that. And what has inspired me to do that was my own, um, my own pathway from Lexington, Kentucky, which is where I'm from, to coming to Fisk. So I grew up in a trailer park. Um, my mother and I, we moved in that trailer park when I was four years old. Mm -hmm. And to give you an idea, the trailer park looked very similar to the trailer park um, on Dickerson Road where the people were um, evicted after they had bought their trailers, right. the trailer park that was in the news. So I grew up in a very, in a very di difficult circumstances, and my mother and I were the only African-American family in the trailer park. That's what I was going to say because like the narrative around like trailer parks is like white folks like you don't never hear or see or just imagine black folks like you know we have our other like you know kind of um low economic areas but they not the trailer park and right so that's 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 interesting <laughs> yeah so i lived in a, tra a trailer and wow. um it was it was a difficult experience um i experienced racism um, classism and um, and insults just because I lived in the trailer. Right. So I believe the white people there in the trailer park, I think they we were nominally um, a black person, a black family living in that trailer park. Mm -hmm. And but in spite of all of the the challenges there, I still managed to find community. Mm -hmm. uh, so I had friends in the trailer park. I had built community right. even. Um, even in the space of racism and classism, we built community. And it was the classism that pulled us together right. because we were all poor and we <laughs> right. all needed housing right. and we were all um, experiencing um, the ridicule because of the culture around trailer parks. Right. And so when I was running for U.S. Senate, which I talk about a lot, um, um, I remember calling a... a a voter in Knoxville and um, I was telling him I grew up in a trailer park and he said he did too and we both kind of were silent for like 15 or 20 seconds on that phone because we we both knew how that was right. um, that culture and all the things that I witnessed in, in that trailer park so I'm grateful um, to be out of the trailer park and to be honest with you it was the, it was the or to be transparent, because I'm honest anyhow, but to be completely transparent, it was that trailer park that, that instilled in me the passion to get an education, mm -hmm. um, to work hard, because I said, how do I get out of this trailer park? Right. It, it, so I'm little trying to figure out, how do I get out of the trailer park? And so I said, the way to get out of the trailer park is to work hard in school. Mm -hmm. That This was going through my mind. I got to right. work hard in school. Right. And um, I remember, and I hadn't shared this um, on the campaign trail or anywhere else for that matter, but I was, I was put back in my groups, my academic groups, um, because I was having a little difficulty at home. There mm -hmm. was some challenges going on at home. And when I was put back, I did not like it. <laughs> and I worked my tail off. And I, this is when I was in elementary school. Right. And flew by, ended up in all advanced classes coming out of elementary school. Wow. 
and and being at the top of my game academically right. ever since that situation. But for right. me, it was the trailer park. It taught me how to make a lot out of a little. It taught me how to fight for education. Right. Um, it taught me um, how to be independent. And um, and I and it became and it gave me a sense of resiliency. And but I think most importantly, what that trailer park has taught me is to relate to all people. Right. So um, I relate <laughs> to all people because I grew I grew up in a trailer park. Right. 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 And so I learned how to talk to different people. I learned how to um, um, just communicate and maybe overlook things about people. Um, and especially my own desire, especially at that age, people to overlook things about me, particularly that I lived in the trailer park. Right, right. Man, I can only imagine the transition, right, from Kentucky, trailer park, and then coming to Nashville to attend Fisk. How did, how did that transition, you know, um, play a part in your growth and, or even some of your challenges? Um, because two drastic environments, right? Um, and people maybe not understanding, like, where you coming from, right? Right. Um, so that's a really good question. Um, I had visited Fisk uh, while I was in high school. So I knew I wanted to come to Fisk. Mm-hmm. And for me, Fisk was freedom from the from. Lexington and from all that represented me. Mm-hmm. It was freedom. It was, I was ready to be a grown up. Mm-hmm. And a grown up in a positive sense. Like I wasn't trying to get buck wild, go to all the parties I could go. Right. In fact, I was a nerd, like totally straight <laughs> nerd in school. And so still academics drove me. Right. Um, I was tutoring juniors and seniors in calculus when I got there. I was really a nerd and just working hard. And the goal was law school. Right. And so um, connected with other people, people there who were in the same goal, had the same goal. But I will tell you, it was a lot of adjustment. Mm-hmm. And I'm thankful that I went to an HBCU because I did need that support right. and I did need that growth. And um, I actually um, had visited Spelman as well. And that was a real cultural shock for me going to Atlanta. And I saw all these big homes right. and black folks were living in them. Right. I was like, wow. <laughs> and seeing a large population of black folks who had wealth. Right. And so that was a shocker to me, too. That was a cult- something culturally different right. for me. Um, so, but I did connect with people who are grassroots. And so we were at ABC, you hang with your homies, you know, everybody from Kentucky in the Kentucky Fist Club. So I was able to build community there and I ended up becoming SGA president there at Fisk. And, um, I ended up pledging Delta my, um, sophomore year and becoming president of my chapter. I'm, I'm just, um, this is a really good, this is, you're getting to some places. This is good. (laughs) Um, so I was... I really worked hard, uh, committed, Mm -hmm. serious, um, because I know what the experience is like to be felt, to be let down. Um, I know how important it is to depend on somebody Mm -hmm. and them not being there. So I wanted to be a person that people could depend on. And I, you know what, I'm still, (laughs) 
Yeah, I want to be a person that people could depend on because I, I knew growing up in that trailer park, I really was, my mother, as a single mother, I was really, and I and I started staying home by myself at four years old. So I was the last, not four years, fourth grade. Mm -hmm. And so I was a latchkey child. Right. And so I know how it feels to need someone. And I think I've lived my life to try to be present um, for others. Right. Um, but learning at age 50 plus how to also be present for myself. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think that's what informs my work mm -hmm. around social justice issues. Mm -hmm. That's why I connect probably the first organization was with the NAACP when I came to Fisk. Um, and that's probably why I got elected to SJ president and other right. leadership roles because people felt like they could depend on me. And so... Let's get into that, right? Let's get into, you know, why you're here and today and doing what you do. Um, super nerd, as you mentioned, you know, went to all these, you know, um, these great universities, got a great education, you push yourself. Um, there are a lot of other things you could have done, you know, uh, career-wise. Um, why do you think or what influenced you or what happened, right? that you wanted to get into law, especially knowing the relationship that black folks specifically, being a black woman yourself, have with the criminal legal system, some call it criminal justice system, some call it criminal punishment system, some call it here in the United States. Well, I will tell you, I remember standing in the kitchen of my grandmother's house on my father's side and I said, I want to be a lawyer. And so you had to remind it, my ticket was trying to get out of the trailer park. Right. I wanted to get out of the trailer park. And so unlike my daughter and my son and probably yourself, I wasn't as conscious as um, I could have been probably in a younger age. I think I became more conscious when I came to Fisk. Okay. It'll do, hey, Fisk is... And I don't think Nashville gets the credit it deserves personally because people tend to look at Alabama, Atlanta, Mississippi, but I don't, you know, um, estates, you know, or cities there. And I don't think I don't think Nashville gets the credit we deserve because we're not in those conversations a lot of times. Even in textbooks you see, like you skip over Tennessee, but it's here. You know, it it's, is. it's here, and I'm glad that you got a piece yeah. of that. I, yeah, I did. So I, I became more conscious when I became when when I was here um, in Nashville, becoming active with the NAACP, mm -hmm. wanting to do social justice and change, addressing issues of, of racism and classism. Um, you know, at that, at that time, the big deal was what was happening in Vanderbilt versus mm -hmm. what was happening in Fisk. Right. Um, so those kind of issues inspired me and to look at what I was going to do in terms of my legal career. Okay. Um, so the things that, that guided got me, and I just recommend for anybody who wants to go to law school, um, get you a mentor. These are things that I did not have when I got, got, got there to, to, to Emory, is to get you a mentor, somebody to guide you and kind of harness your, help you to harness your gifts and direction. Mm -hmm. And, but I, thanks be to God that I was able to be um, at the Attorney General's office um, because I was seeing a lot, these appeals that were coming through, you right. know, a lot of crime and most of the people that were being convicted were black people and right. poor people who were on my appellate docket. Okay. 
Um, so I didn't get to always see their faces. I just right. saw their names and, and, and um, demographic um, information about them. Um, so, um, so yeah, um, you, you, you got to be, you, you, we got to make change. Right. I, I'm excited about running for judge right now. What, so? Because we're at a time now in our, in our community mm -hmm. to do right. some awesome change around right. these issues. And right. I am so inspired and passionate, passionate, and I believe I'm here for such a time as this. What are some of those issues um, that you are passionate about? Wow, that's a easy, that's a softball question. So I ran for U.S. Senate, mm -hmm. and um, it was a wild, amazing ride. So I got to talk about a lot of issues that are important to me, mm -hmm. um, especially access to health care. So I'm unapologetically believe that everyone um, should have access um, to health care. Right. Um, because we saw during COVID, people lost their jobs and they lost their health insurance. Right. And they died right. um, because they didn't have access to health care. And we can see how um, making the vaccines available and uh, masks available helps with, 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 with these issues. Prevention, with, yeah. with prevention right. and with sa saving lives, right. you know, overall. Um, so these, that, that's an issue I'm very passionate about. I'm passionate about mental health issues. We, we do not put enough resources into helping people with mental health issues. Right. These are real issues. And so I'm passionate about it. I believe that we need um, support systems of access. Uh, right. We need to reduce costs related right. to mental health. I was talking to someone the other day, and they said, well, you know, they can go to the doctor if they have insurance. But I said, even if a person has insurance, it doesn't mean that they can afford right. to the care. Because after you pay, a, uh, your, the, the, um, the deductible right. may be unaffordable. Right. I, I am afraid for my family member. And when I, and although running for a judge, I cannot comment on any kind of cases or anything like that. Right. But I will tell you as a human being that that, that sits heavily with me. Um, I'm concerned about these issues. And it's not just because of my family member, right. um, but it is because I see vulnerable populations who, um, really need assistance right. and understanding and we need to understand that behind the beyond the blindfold they're, 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 these people are human right. um, they've come they, they they may be broken in right. so many ways and tra traumatized in so many ways so yeah that that it, it hits home mm -hmm. and um, and this is what inspires my passion for justice. I think every judge needs to realize that there goes I, but the grace of God. If somebody has a mental health issue, you know, they might appear before you if elected judge. Um, how does that play into your decision making? Um, when you might be ruling on a case and you, you realize and you know um, okay, this individual is in front of me has some serious mental health issues that led to him or her making or doing this offense or whatever have you. 
how does that go into who you are as a person and what type of judgments that you that you could possibly make? Okay, this is a great question. So we do have mental health, a mental health court docket. So those cases, people can be evaluated and go to mental health court. Um, I, w I will say that I had a case in General Sessions Court. And so after the Senate race, um, I actually took on some energy cases and I had a client who had four mental health diagnoses. Um, the person uh, was arrested for um, two felonies. And I really appreciated the way the judge handled this case. Um, and I appreciated, and not to pat myself on the back or anything, the way this, this lawyer handled that case. Um, because the what I made as the attorney of priorities that we need mental health intervention for my client. And so the judge gave um, my client, Tom, to get access to medication and to get some redirected uh, my client for housing because there was some, with the current housing situation, it involved some power and control and the source of that was my client's mental health um, issues. Um, so I want to be that judge that looks at possibilities of interventions and identifying the problem. Right. And at the same time, listening to the concerns of the victim mm -hmm. and what th they actually wanted. And so the, so the judge was able to hear that through the, um, the prosecutor okay. uh, of the case. And so I wanna be a judge who's able to listen to both sides and be able to be in a position to make a ruling that, um, that that is that will benefit society as a whole, not just the people standing, be, not just the people standing before me. And in that case, um, my client was able to get into a, ultimately into a drug treatment program because my client also had um, a dual diagnosis of drug dependency issues. Okay. And 30 day because this judge worked with the defense attorney, which was me, and the prosecution, who was very cooperative in this case, we were able to get my client 30, regulated on meds and 30 days of sobriety under the client's belt. Wow. And so that's the kind of judge I want to be. I want to be able to, and, and ultimately the charges were dismissed. Uh, I want to be the judge that, that looks beyond the blindfold, and I say this all the time, and to see that there's a human being and making sure that every voice is heard. Right. I want to have a trauma-informed court where we are fully addressing trauma issues that meet the court, mm -hmm. not, not from the defense side and from the accused side. Mm -hmm. And this is not just on the criminal docket, but also on the civil docket because people come in with all sets of kinds of issues. Right. And we need to be equipped um, to refer people and to be a resource um, to help address these issues. We cannot, we need to stop running people through the docket like widgets. These are human beings mm -hmm. who deserve to be treated with respect.
one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, and you know, um, I, th- I think I've, I've read, I know you speak on it a lot. Well, not a lot, but I know you touched on it a lot. Uh, it's about the classism and how does classism affect uh, our judicial system and what role can judges play in that? That's a really good question. Um, so I've experienced classism. Now, classism um, br- brings together the hood and the holler. Um, classism is an issue that Dr. King talked about, and I believe that's really what he got killed over, was talking about bringing poor communities um, together. And when you think about class issues, you think about living wage issues, um, people not getting paid a living wage and $9 an hour. Um, So I I make $9 an hour. I can't afford to feed my family. I'm desperate, so I steal steal food or I can't afford to pay my rent right so poor people are hitting the docket left and right and they're they're most vulnerable to the to the judicial system on the civil and the criminal side because I believe that most people commit crimes out of desperation that it is connected to poverty environment and what poverty can look what looks like in our communities so we do have a homeless court. Um, so there is a court to address issues directly affecting homelessness and th- the veterans court. Because right. um, you deal with people who are veterans and who have been forgotten and right. who are dealing with trauma issues and right. um, PTSD. Um, so there are courts specializing on that. So yeah, I, and, and then you get into other issues um, like cash bond. How does right. that have an impact on poor people? Right. Um, you get into parking at the court. Right. Um, it costs money um, to park um, to go to court. So you're talking about maybe ten to twenty dollars or more to park for your for your docket. Right. So I believe that we definitely need to do some things to address um, systemic issues um, in our court, um, like po- poverty. And I believe the way to address that is that we need to be um, unapologetically talking about issues of poverty and how we can um, um, pass policies and work on legislation statewide um, to um, create resources uh, for the poor, um, to make sure that we are addressing issues concerning housing, Mm and that we are addressing issues concerning a living wage. If elected, if elected judge, what are some ways that you feel like you can do that? Like sit on the bench and try to get legislation and policies passed that is not rooted in discrimination, classism, racism, um, uh, any disparities in general that affect those um, that are poor, that are black, marginalized, Mm -hmm. and all these things, the people that are generally affected by our criminal legal system. Yeah, and General Sessions' population is probably 90% reflective of what you just described. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and immigrant communities Mm -hmm. as well. Um, So, one thing I want to talk about is this pilot program that I want to do. I want to do an after-hours court. Okay. I want to do a court where people don't have to miss their nine dollar an hour job, or business owners don't have to miss their taking care of their businesses to attend court. Mm. 
So I want to restructure how we're doing court and making court more accessible. And I think that will also help with paying outrageous amount for parking as well. So I want to restructure how we're doing the docket. Um, I also want to eliminate as many appearances that are required on the docket. Uh, right now, to, before your case is even up for a settlement or discussion on the criminal side, you've got to at least come twice to court. That first appearance and then that second time you come, you can come and you talk about your case okay. if things have not been reset. So I believe we need to do a better job on um, making sure that we're making court as efficient as possible so right. people are not missing work. And that's true for persons accused or victim. Right. Um, because you gotta look on the on the victim or plaintiff or defense side, they're poor too. Right. Um, I want to look at issues. Um, I want to be a voice at the table um, of the Tennessee Judicial Conference right. because judges participate on um, in conferences statewide. They can um, they can voice concerns about how courts can do things differently right. and address policies. So judges do have a code of conduct to go by. So judges can't take a, a huge stance on issues. Right. But our code of conduct does address um, the importance of, um, of making sure everyone is treated fairly regardless of their demo demographics right. or cultural context. Right. And so I do want to make sure that we are being, that we unapologetically remember that in our code of conduct and, right. uh, and, and are implementing that in our courtrooms. Okay. Um, another thing that I want to do is I want to build a um, collaboration of organizations um, so that communities can be more involved in the court and gauging ideas and suggestions from them on how we can do court better. That's a good point because right now I think one of the one of the the most intimate ways I think that community can get involved in court is court watch, community court watch. But what I was going to ask you is, like, how, as judge, what are your plans to stay connected and tapped in to community without community having to appear before you? Okay, yeah, uh, this is it. I want to build a um, collaboration of community organizations, grassroots organizations. Okay who are on the ground um, working with victims and who are working with, with persons who are most vulnerable to being before, before the court okay. and how we can do court better. Um, I want to make sure that folks are educated about the court. What actually happens there? Some people don't <laughs> learn about court until they're going through the system in some form of fashion. Right. And so I want to I be doing regular town halls. I want to come back on your show. I want to constantly be talking to people about what happens in these courts. Um, you talked about court watching. Uh, I know a lot of people are doing court watching. They're, they're scheduling court watches and they're going down seeing different judges. Mm -hmm. I want to invite people into, into, the court, into my court. 
on my docket so that they can um, have some more structured court watching. And I do want to have um, feedback sessions. Right. What was your visit like when you came to court watch? What did you have questions about? What bothered you? You know how we asked a question at the end of those other meetings. What was the tension for you in the court? Right. And um, what is something you didn't understand? Because right. that may be something we can do better. Right. Or what did you? What is something that you, that you observed that was good? That mm. oh, I really under, understood understood this. Or or because um, I'm I'm going to be doing constant feedback. So I worked for a nonprofit for many years, and I know how important it is to engage feedback. Right. Uh, data, survey, right. data. Um, so one thing I'm going to do, um, a, a, another thing I'm going to do related to that is I want to implement a community assessment survey. Right. So I'm actually going to send this survey out community-wide, especially to my lawyers out there who are holding it down, mm -hmm. doing appointment work, right. um, the public defender office, the prosecutors down there, and um, other system folks like probation officers, the interpreters down there. Right. I want to get some feedback on um, how they're experiencing court and some of their ideas on what we can do differently. And I want to do a um, have a core team that will help develop the questions for that survey from all um, perspectives. Right. So my court will be community engaged and community involved because the community hires me to right. do this job right. and they need to be the ones who evaluate me hold me accountable right. and they and I need to be accessible not just when it's time for re-election right. uh, they need to know who they go everybody's gonna know <laughs> everybody gonna know who's on general session division five right um, court will not be the same it's, it is going to be community engaged I'm going to make sure um, when I'm hiring people they're going to be community people right. um, that are going to be working um, with me on the docket what 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 would you say are some some of the the challenges that um, that the Division Five courtroom has now that you want to make better um, as a new candidate, a new judge, um, a new person sitting in that seat if elected? Great. So for me. What is going to change about Division Five when I become judge? It is that it's going to be more community connected. Okay. Number two, people come into court. Period. Regardless of what division they're going to, afraid, confused, stressed, um, traumatized. And I want to make sure that Division 5 experience alleviates a lot of that. Okay. And that's going to be reflected in the way I communicate with the court, with, with the folks that are in the court. And it's going to be reflected in the fact that I'm going to be building relationships uh, with, the, with the folks that are coming th through court. And um, I want to... Um, if I had if I had my druthers, I wouldn't sit up on the bench. I would probably sit at a table <laughs> in front of everybody to equal the playing field here. That I think mm -hmm. that takes a lot of the stress off of that because people are like, "Oh, there's the judge." Right. And although we do have to have, you know, there has to be some deference to what's hap happening so that we can have structure um, and some some order in in the court. 
but I want it to be in such a way that it's a reflection of love, right. grace, and compassion and mercy. Uh, I am a chaplain. Um, so um, I, we, um, there's a prayer I know that people do before the court, God bless the court, God bless the United States. Um, I, I use the court officer does it. I might have you to come in and do it one time. Um, I'm just going to have different people involved in the process. Right. So people are not just down on court to court watch right. or to be a litigant right. or to be a system person. Right. But somebody's there as a guest right. um, to do something um, for, for the court. Um, so, yes, I'm going to be... I, I, the, being a judge is a wonderful platform to do right. a lot of the work that we did right. and, and that or other organization. Right. Um, just think if you had the Community Bail Fund, you had Gideon's Army, you right. had NAACP, you got MPHC, you got um, Legal Women's Voters, you got LAW, Nashville Bar Association, Napier Luba, you got them, right. everybody sitting at a table. Right talking about their experiences and, and ideas um, coming out of a collaborative effort. That's what I want to do. What does justice mean to you? Because most people, you know, again, um, criminal legal system, criminal justice system, criminal punishment system, but the most, most people use criminal justice system still um, to describe our, our, our legal system here. But a lot of people don't leave feeling like they were treated you know what I'm saying, in a, in a justifiable way. Uh, don't feel like they, they, they got justice from the system or out of the system. Um, so what does that mean to you? Justice, right. And it's, an, and it's a dynamic word, I know. It is a dynamic and, and word. justice can mean different things to many people, but um, I think it's important for us as community members and residents to, to know what that means to um, our incumbent judges and, and inspiring future judges that may sit on the bench. Well, I just want to first say, everyone visit my website, KimbroHayes.com, because I have a set of uh, FAQs, five under five, and they're videos. And one of them is, what does justice mean to you? That's one of the questions. And justice to me means access. If I had to boil it down into one word, it means everybody mm. has access. And, and that means access means everybody. Everybody's voice is heard regardless of their social economic or racial context right. or political affiliation. Every voice is heard and valued. And everyone has access to the resources and opportunities everyone else has on the docket. Another dynamic word is power which is another thing that judges have. Judges have a lot of decision-making power. You know, if elected judge, how do you plan to use your power to better Nashville? Well, um, that's, that's a great question, and it's an important question. Um, and I think power has gotten a bad rep reputation over the years. Um, and we need to re-deconstruct that term and what it is. So power um, for me and as far as the judicial system is concerned, and I think power is written on the back of the wall right there, um, is, the is the ability to provide services and resources to others who need 
And that's what makes somebody powerful. And what else makes somebody else powerful is the ability to receive those services and resources with a glad heart. And it is knowing, mm -hmm. it is knowing where your help comes from. And, and when you know where your help comes from, you have humility. And if you exercise the ability to be able to provide a service to someone with humility, and I use this word a lot, love, grace, um, that's what I'm going to do on the bench. And, that's, and I believe that it's contagious. And I'm going to be a voice at the table that's, that will speak when other folks can't speak. When justice, justice will no longer be silenced mm. under my leadership. Um, justice will have a voice. And it means using that power that's in the gavel mm -hmm. to bring balance to the bench and to make sure every voice is heard. Some people get black robe fever. Mm. You know, they get caught up into that. Right. But when you get caught up into that, you forget about the people. Right. See, when you forget where your power comes from, you can go on an ego trip. Mm. But when you know that the people have bestowed upon you this responsibility, right. um, you, you, will, you will use it to, you will you you will see yourself as a vessel um, to serve and not be served. On a scale of one to ten, what would you rank our Nashville, Davis County judicial general elections, general sessions, excuse me, general sessions uh, system? If you had to rank it one to ten, one being the lowest, ten being the highest. Wow, Jerome, you're just asking these really hard questions, aren't you? <laughs> well, um, That's why we're here. it's this. hard to, when I think about, it's, it, let me tell you why that question is difficult, because there's so many pieces to General Sessions right, Court. Right. When I look at the attorneys down there who work hard and take appointed cases and who are up against a system that's really hard every day, mm -hmm. they get tens. So when people say, oh, those appointed attorneys don't care, the public, yes, they do. They're, they're working hard down, down there. And um, from, the one, from the attorneys that I've seen and I've interacted with, and they help me along the way working with my clients. Um, as far as access to justice and people understanding what's going on in the system, mm -hmm. people are clear about what's going on. Um, I would say uh, about a five. I think most people come into General Sessions Court very confused, mm -hmm. and we don't do a good job of explaining what's going on in the court. And I base that not only just people flowing through, but people on the outside. Right. You know, w w we need to do a better job in letting people know what General Sessions Court is. Okay. And we need to do a better job letting people know what circuit court is, right. what probate court is. And I believe it's all been in this um, bubble mm -hmm. uh, or this cocoon, mm -hmm. and people are not totally educated about it. But I like times have changed. Right. 
people want to know. Right. People are asking questions. And I want to be somebody who can be there to um, share, share information. Okay. Because right now, people really don't trust the courts. Right. That's why I give it a five, because a lot of people don't trust the courts. They don't believe right. the courts are transparent. Right. So I think the courts need to be a lot more transparent. We need to educate more about the courts. Um, am I going to make it a 10? Um, I hope so. Right. But it's not just me. Right. It's going to take a team. Right. It's going to take the judges. Mm-hmm. It's going to take community folks holding us accountable. Right. It's going to take um, surveys. Right. It's going to take people getting mad. It's going to take, um, uh, what is it called? I saw this word. I love it. Um, it's going to take disruption. Right. And it's going to take all of that to get us to where we need to be. We need to be, we need to, we need to be called out. Right. It's my last question, and I'm going <laughs> to let you take it away. I'm going to let you end this out. You're running for this seat. You're trying to cause a little bit of disruption yourself by changing things up. What type of good disruption is Robin Kimbrough Hayes going to cause if elected judge with Division 5 in Davidson County? um, This is a great question. Um, We began this conversation about talking about me growing up in a trailer park. The fact that I'm running for this seat is disruption. Mm. People like me usually don't get an opportunity to run. Right. They don't have the money. Right. They don't have the name. They don't have the family history of this and that. Um, I have I basically come from ground zero. And there are some other candidates that have other um, stories as well. So when somebody comes out of the trailer park and runs for office, it is a disruption mm. because they're going to bring a context of truth and sincerity right. and countercultural thinking and right. context to the job. Well, look, I enjoy talking to you. I enjoyed this interview, <laughs> and I want to leave you with the last word. So is there anything that uh, you would like to tell the viewers, the, the hundreds and thousands of people that's watching this and listening to this here in Nashville, um, is there anything that you want to say to them to, um, to take us home? Well, first, um, Jerome, I want to say to you, thank you for this work that you're doing. So, and I'm so pleased and honored to have met you in our other roles. And, um, but it's people like you who are disruptors that I want to get involved with um, with making things happen with the docket. I don't say that I have all the ideas. I have, a, I really want to do that pilot project um, um, to have a, a, after our court. I had a client who missed his job so many times mm-hmm. to come to court. We finally got his case dismissed, but it wasn't fair. Had to miss his work. He has a son. He's a dad, mm-hmm. in spite of what he was charged with. Um, so I don't have all the answers, so I'm going to be dependent on everybody to help me. And, um, and I want to bring a breath of fresh air to the bench. I want to bring change. 
I want to alleviate some of the stress and not just for the people, the litigants, the victims, the accused, the plaintiffs, the, the, um, and those on the defendant side, but in the civil cases, um, but to the lawyers that are working there and the other system people. And I, one thing that I can guarantee that I'm going to do is to treat everybody with respect. I'm going to open, be open to accountability. I want to be held accountable. And I will make sure that every voice is heard. And I will be the same that you see me here today, that you see me at NAACP meetings or, um, or anywhere in the community, or shopping at my favorite thrift store, I'm gonna be the same person um, after I win the seat. And um, I'm gonna be the same. And I just wanna assure people of that, because I do ask people, are you gonna change, Robin, you gonna change? No, I'm not gonna change. And if you see me changing, you got my cell phone number. Most people that know me got my cell number. And I want you to call me out okay. and hold me accountable. And, um, and I will tell you that I'm going to make mistakes, but if you allow me a chance um, to have redemption, I promise you, and God knows this, God's self, that I will do my very best to try to embrace opportunities to get it right again. So spread the word, vote Kimbrough Hayes, May the 3rd. There it is. Robin, I appreciate you being here, your time, your availability, and uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's win this seat. I'm working hard. Um, uh, still picking up cheers from school and managing my, ch my son and my husband, who has been super great. <laughs> Wish I had a chance to brag on him. He's taking care of the campaign. Right. And uh, we are, we're, we're got some ideas about, um, we've learned a lot how to run campaigns. And uh, we are looking at having some, helping grassroots folks like your, let's say you decided to run for office. We want to help folks like you to say, hey, you need to get NGP. Here's how we're going to, we're going right. to, we're going to set it up for you. We're going to, we're going to do all these things for you to get you, get you rolling on your office. So we want to help progressives, candidates who are disruptors um, to get into office. All right. Well, thank you. You got to come back. You know I will. <laughs> I will be back and dress on time and hopefully my son won't be going off. <laughs> All right. That's it. See y'all. Talk to y'all later.